1: With the athletic season nearly complete, what better time to reflect than now? But this week, we aren't talking about this past campaign. We're taking you back to 1989 and the arrival of the voice that's become synonymous with the orange and blue. Mick Hubert is celebrating 30 years with the Gators, and if you talk to him, it is now the question he has 30 more left in him. Now 40 years into his broadcasting career, the Illinois native still has a youthful exuberance for what he does and a passion for doing it his way a tremendous source of pride for the newly minted member of the Florida Sports Hall of Fame. We spoke to Mick about his life and career and were enthralled by his stories, both personal and professional, that spanned his career in Gainesville and beyond, but began our conversation by asking him to take us back to the beginning of his story, as only he could tell it.
0: I grew up in the Midwest, just in a small little town south of Chicago, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to grow up. We didn't have any traffic lights. <laughs> it was small. <laughs> You'd get on your bicycle and ride every street in town and do it all in 20 minutes. So we knew everybody in town. I remember in the summer, we would all get together at the baseball field and we, a standing deal. One o'clock every afternoon, we'd play softball. And some Sometimes there'd be five on five. Sometimes there'd be nine on nine. Whoever showed up. We always had a game you know sometimes right field might be closed because we didn't have enough to man right field or you know whatever pitchers <laughs> handout. sometimes we may not have had enough for a first baseball it was a pitcher's handout but we had a great time we'd play two three hours whatever it was every day and so i had this background my dad was a great athlete and i got all my interest from that i have a an older brother uh drove a united parcel truck for 30 years and retired and i have a, an older sister who has uh, moved to Florida several years ago. She's retired, and there's just the three of us, and mom and dad, and, and I always wanted to be a sportscaster, so uh, that was the dream that was in my heart, and I pursued that and chased that and, and uh, went to Illinois State and graduated from there and, and uh, got a job in, in Peoria, really, while well, I was a senior in college, got an internship there in Peoria, and then it became a full-time job after school was out. And uh, then I got to do the Bradley Braves basketball play-by-play. It was probably one of the youngest announcers in the country, really, to, to do a major college program. I was 24 years old, I guess, and I did that for three years, and then I moved to Dayton, Ohio, and uh, did the Flyers. Uh, worked on Channel 7 and WHIO-TV and W.H.I.O. Radio there in Dayton for 10 years, and you know, sent a tape down here and 150 tapes and they sifted through them and I was selected. So I always say I was here by the grace of God. I had no ties whatsoever uh, to Florida and uh, it just worked out for me. And that was now 30 years ago.
1: You mentioned having the dream of being a sports broadcaster. Do you remember where that came from and when you first got interested in it? Well, yeah, just as a as a kid, uh, you know, playing all the games of early on, I decided it'd be
0: nice either to be a coach or a broadcaster, and I'm so glad the fork of the road led me to broadcasting because it'd be awful to be a coach. I mean, it's, <laughs> I mean, for every Steve Spurrier that's out there and, you know, every Billy Donovan, and, you know, the guys making millions of dollars, there's a bunch of guys uh, making no money at all or having to be a high school coach. and and uh, and teach four or five classes. They may be the greatest math teacher in the state of wherever they live, but their football team goes four and six and they get fired uh, because they didn't win a football game. But they may have been the teacher of the year in the classroom. So uh, there's a lot of guys laboring like that, and uh, they do it for the love of the game. But I got in it for broadcasting because I love that. You know, I was fortunate to be watching television in the Chicago market, which was, you know, number two market in the country. And I saw some great sportscasters and uh, and watched some great television. And I I got uh, the bug from watching guys like Jack Brookhouse call the Cubs for all those years and Harry Carey, who I could hear back when I was younger in St. Louis on KMOX. And then he came to Chicago to the White Sox and the Cubs for all those years. Jim Durham was one of my mentor guys that did the Chicago Bulls. Uh, so much of my radio basketball descriptions are, are taken from Jim Durham and his pacing and his style and all of that. And Jim did the Bulls for many years, including the early NBA championships, and then went to Dallas, did the Mavericks, and then finally ended up at ESPN. And uh, I knew him really when I was a, a teenager. He was dating my sister for a while in a small town about Twenty miles away so those were the local influences that I had pretty good sportscasters working in the second largest market Uh, I watched Brent Musburger on TV every night on channel 2 in Chicago do the nightly TV sports Mm. back in the 60s and 70s and I don't know Brent must have been you know probably in his 30s then and uh, so I watched him and and the same thing for uh, uh, Greg Gumbel he was on channel 5 in Chicago as the local sports guy Mm. watched him do that and you know so I just had this love to do sports and uh, and so that's that's what that's how worked
1: out what do you remember about the first game that you called because I, I can certainly think of mine so I'm curious if you reflect often on sort of the, the starting point and probably look back on it and think about all the things you did wrong but what, what do you remember about that
0: well I remember I was in Peoria in my first job and uh, you know I did the Bradley Braves but college basketball but I also did high school basketball as well as high school football and so my first broadcast was a high school football game and back then there were eight schools in the Peoria Metro. And uh, there were only about three stadiums they played in. There was Peoria Municipal Stadium where most of the games were played. So, you know, I, I'd go there and call my games and it'd be two teams this week. And next week I might go right back to the same stadium and call two other teams. Or, and after doing that for a couple of times, I one of the local uh, sports writers there wrote a story about me and said, you know, it looked like he can hold his own here. It looked like he was able to navigate his way through the city league. And, and it seemed like he was fairly confident. And I thought, well, that's good. I mean, some good <laughs> Local sports writer who'd been in town for a long time uh, wrote a, a nice article on me broadcasting high school football games. And so, uh, you know, when you do high school football games, often you're sitting in a, you know, a big room you don't really have sometimes a private radio booth and mm-hmm. so everybody in there can hear you. So it's, you get a little intimidated. And, uh, you know, but by the same token, the guy sitting six feet to your right might be the PA announcer. He ends up taking what you're saying and he's, he's calling the game based on what you're saying to the right. game. And so you have to kind of learn to get, you just kind of have blinders on almost focus. And, uh, and I always say the the higher you go, yeah, there's more pressure on you, but the higher you go, the easier it is because you got more support personnel you know, when you're doing high school sports, you got to be your own producer and you know your own uh, sports information guy. You sure. got to keep your own stats. Maybe I kept the you know, I kept stats of the entire Mid State Eight because I was the one calling the games. And so, you know, it's not like it was today. You just couldn't go on the internet and find stats. Mm-hmm. There was no internet. So yeah, I always thought you know if you, if you can survive and, and know how to do it at the lowest levels, if you got any ability it'll get easier as you take a step up the ladder because you got, you know, it's easier to get done. Now the, the audience is larger and the pressure is greater, but you should be also growing in your trade at the same time. So that, that was my first memory of that. And then, uh, you know, as I look back on it, the uh, Bradley basketball, that, that year, that I, the last year I was there, we played Indiana state. They had a great player named Larry Bird. Wow. We played them twice. So, uh, you know, that was back in 1979. So it was it was it was major college. There was there was no such thing then as uh, you know mid majors. They were all just one, and uh, we we were playing in the Missouri Valley Conference. And you know I, I didn't think about it being a, a low major, a mid major, anything like that. It was just college basketball. Mm-hmm. And from that, then I went to Dayton and, and did the Dayton Flyers.
1: When you got to Florida, obviously it it syncs up with roughly when Steve Spurrier arrived as well. So as we talk about your time with the Gators. I'm curious what stories you remember the most from football especially and uh, from that that era of the head ball coach.
0: You know, for many, many years, uh, all through the Spurrier era and through Ron Zook and even uh, uh, attempted to do this with Urban Meyer, I would interview the coach on Friday morning at 1030. That was a standing time to do the radio pregame show for tomorrow's football broadcast. And uh, I remember in the, maybe this the, the first year that Steve was there, which was my second year, and I had a list of probably 10 questions and, you know, to sit there in his office. and And I realized it was a waste of time <laughs> to write down 10 questions. And it made me a better interviewer because Steve was answering questions I hadn't even asked. Mm-hmm. And Billy Donovan would be the same way. And I realized you just can't ask question one and then two and three. And then you get to question four if you're not thinking about it, he already answered question four as the last part of question one, answer to question one. So I realized, you know, it's okay to have a roadmap, but don't don't follow it closely. Just listen, listen, and follow up questions and just have a conversation, you know. And so that that helped me a lot because Steve gave great interviews and so did Billy, you know, and, and the hardest part about those interviews were making sure you had the best stuff in them. Uh, we could fill 20 minutes. Sure. The problem is we might only have five to seven minutes. So you want to make sure your first two or three questions are, are are going to cover it all because you might only get to ask three questions and all of a sudden six minutes is up mm-hmm. and you go oh gee i didn't get to that well if you didn't get to that it should have been a higher priority that was what i learned partly in that and then uh, obviously uh, knowing when steve was here it was the fun and gun and it really was i mean we were so far advanced over the sec defenses that we were throwing balls all over the field. I mean, yeah, and guys were running wide open, and we could run the ball, and we'd throw the ball to get the lead in the first half. We'd run the ball to, you know, to run off the clock in the second half. And oh, oh, by the way, we had fifty or sixty points on the board, and it was it was tremendous. It was great, and uh, you know, I enjoyed working with Ron's a lot. He was great to me. I knew him when he was an assistant coach here, and before he was a defensive coordinator, and. You know, I could walk down the hallway of those football offices and they'd say, hey, Mick, come on in, come on in here. Sit down. You know, and I, I was walking down the hallway with the express purpose of trying to visit with somebody. If I wasn't going to knock on anybody's door and say, are you busy? I'd look in and if they weren't looking up at me, I'd just keep on walking. And but somebody would say, whether it be Carl Franks or Jim Collins or Jimmy Ray Stevens or Charlie Strong or Ron Zook or whoever it was, they'd come in. And the next thing I know, they'd be up standing up there doing X's and O's on a chalkboard teaching me football. I'm going. This is like a postgraduate uh, tr- training in football coaching. Yeah. And Billy would do the same thing. We'd be talking, B- Billy would explain something. He's like, man, he's he'd get on a piece of paper, and he next thing I know, he'd draw down a free throw lane, a, a jump circle. and He'd have X's and O's on the field and, or on the court, and he'd diagramming plays up. I'm going, oh, wow, getting taught by Billy Donovan basketball. So it was all a part of that. That's what, and I loved the preparation for the games. You know, in basketball they come quickly, so you might only have a couple of days to prepare for a game. You're maybe playing every third day. Football, you're every seven days. So I love Monday through Friday getting ready for that. Here I had these coaches that were embracing me, would take me in. And we were kind of a smaller operation then. I mean, I always kid we were we were kind of a mom and pop operation then (laughs) compared to today where we're, you know, IBM global. You know, and now you got to have a a key code to get in the hallway. And, you know, some coaches, I'd walk down the hallway and they'd look at me like, what do you want? What are you here for? Why are you here? Right. But so I had to I had to change. And it's kind of with Dan Mullen back now. It's kind of like it used to be, you know, and I I, I enjoy that. And, uh, you know, the games have been been fun to call. And I, I just felt the preparation was so critical and still is, because when you speak for a living, You're going to make a mistake. You're you're going to. There's no backspace to the tongue. So Mm -hmm. you're going to make a mistake. So I figured I need to do whatever I can to prepare to minimize the mistakes. Because you can make mistakes when you're fully prepared. I shudder to think how many mistakes I'd make if I wasn't prepared. Right. And that's why I've always kidded my sports writer friends and the sports writers. I have a great relationship with all the sports writers. You know, I mean, we have a bond that we love sports. And so I talk, about I always kid them. I say, I don't know how I ever read a mistake you guys make in the paper because you got a backspace and you can only just delete, you know, you get one chance. As a play-by-play announcer, right. I get the call right. That's why I have a sense of urgency when I'm making a call, it's not a sense of failure. It's that you better be ready. Right. And I remember a year ago, a, a couple of years ago, I happened to be at church one Sunday, and we were, you know, in the back of the church. I think the church hadn't started yet. We're, so we were talking about football, you know, back there. And the guy asked me about Call in game said he enjoyed my announcing this, that, and the other, all that kind of stuff. I said, you know, I, I gave him the same type of thing. I you gotta be ready. I said, for example, you know, if we're if the ball's on the two yard line and we're going the other way, the odds are we're not gonna score a 98 yard touchdown. I said, but can you imagine if we do how exciting that play is going to be going 98 yards? I gotta get ready. I just can't say, well, you know, they they split the huddle and the tailback's two yards deep in the end zone, and here's a handoff, and it's probably gonna be a two yard game. You know, you gotta be ready. And it was six days later, the following Saturday, the very next game, we're in Baton Rouge. That's that hurricane game that got mm. moved from September to November. Lo and behold, Austin Appleby drops back from the back of the end zone, the ball coming off the two-yard line, throws a pass to the 50-yard line. We make the catch, break a tackle, and boom, we go 98 yards for a touchdown. And I just remember looking up in the sky and saying, God, thank you, thank you. <laughs> it, was like, it was like he was saying, I told you, get ready, get right. ready. And we had a 98-yard touchdown. I'm thinking, this is the play of the game. And it was the play of the game until it wasn't the play of the game, right? Because the goal line stand superseded it. You know, fourth and goal, we stop them down there at the half inch line, and we win the SEC Eastern Division title in Baton Rouge. Fourth That's the, the sense of urgency you have. And I, I try and call every game like this might be the game that someone's going to take and put in a time capsule somewhere In 30 or 40 years from now they're going to play it and people are going to say, gosh, that guy was terrible. You know, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want that because you never know when that play is going to be the, the play that is going to be the one they remember. And so you, you kind of got knowing that you're not going to be perfect, you try and strive for perfection. And also at the same time, here's what maturity will give you is that when you're calling a game, and I'm calling game of the Florida Gators, I know 99% probably of my audience are Gator fans. Mm -hmm. Not all of them, but most of them. And I'm not calling the game for anybody but Gator fans. Now, having said all of that, I realize that when you're in the public eye, not 100% of the Gator fans are going to like you. Right. And so I realized that not all the Gator fans, some of the Gator fans to this day are wishing David Steele was still here and he's been gone 30 years. And some people say, I wish Otis Boggs was still here and he'd been gone for 40 some years, you know? So I, I realized that. But I have overwhelmingly had the favor of people that have been so good to me and that's why I'm still here. And because I only know how to do it one way. And if I would have come here in 1989 and called it the way I called it and if it didn't work out, I wouldn't have been crushed because I had 13 years of broadcast experience under my belt. I would have realized this is how I do it. This is the way that was successful in Peoria. It played in Peoria. It played in Dayton. Guess what? It's just not going to play here. I'll go somewhere else and do it that way because somebody else will embrace it and will like it. But it didn't work out that way. People Mm -hmm. liked it. And that's why I've been able to stay. Jeremy Foley was so great to me and, part of the hiring along with Bill And Now we have Scott Strickland who I've known for 20 years and he's been tremendous to me as well. And we have a great relationship there. So I've just had the blessing of the administration and the blessing of coaches, you know, I mean, like I said, I know not every fan is likes Mick Hubert, but Hey, that's okay. You can't, when you're in the public eye, you can't please everybody all the time and you got to have a thick enough skin and you got to have enough maturity to, to realize that because if you don't, it leads you up, it leads you alive, and then you'll lose your edge and all of a sudden you'll let you'll let the enemy defeat you. Right, And that, that, that can happen.
1: I imagine this is not a very productive exercise, but I, I am curious if there's any calls that, I, I wouldn't say you regret, but are there any big moments where even though you were fully prepared for it, you feel like if you could go back in time, you would call it differently than you did? Yeah, I don't know that I have any particular that I could just narrate to you, but I know this, Football, especially, but all
0: the sports, you have to maintain a high degree of concentration. And the reason I say football is because it might be three and a half hours. So there's a tendency, you know, if you don't bear down on it, you can get a little, you can get a little loose, or you can get a little distracted. And you're working in an analyst, you're working in the sideline reporter, and maybe they're talking, and uh, you you should be the one talking now, or you got to get it back. And you're kind of maybe trailing a play, or maybe you know I, I call a lot. A football with binoculars so i've been trained to go with binoculars to live eye binoculars and sometimes you get caught between and you may not have seen especially if there's some trickery going on or some depth ball handling you might not see the play fake you know so you might have you might have the uh, you know the the ball in the wrong guy's hands for maybe five yards and then you realize oh i'm behind on this play well now you can't panic you got to just kind of z- zero back in and so you, you always want to finish out with a strong call, but coming out of the starting blocks, that call might have been not, might not have been crisp. Having said that, there are also some tricks. Say the quarterback throws a ball down the field and it's intercepted. Well, if you see it, what are you going to say? You're going to say it's intercepted, you know intercepted by Joe Hayden. But if you don't necessarily know it is because the number might be dirty, might be sullied, might be twisted, you might be shielded, might be blocked, might be traffic. So you say it is, he's throwing the ball down the field, it is intercepted, but you don't know who it is by. It. You hope you're buying time, picked off mm-hmm. by Joe Hayden. I just bought two more seconds, and in that two seconds, the vision cleared up for me. So there's certain ways you can do it. And obviously, as a radio broadcaster, the cardinal sin. Is to never say the ball is intercepted by number twelve. They don't know who number twelve is, so you can't use numbers when you're do- when you're doing radio. So I mean, there are, there are some calls that have not been clear, and it's largely because maybe I haven't seen it right from the start. Because when you see it crystally right from the start, there's no doubt in your call. But there's a little hesitation, a little less animation, maybe it's because you're not quite certain. And uh, and and those are those are the things now. You know, there's probably some words, probably some things that I've said that I wish probably I had a better choice of words. We're not talking about the words that would have gotten me banned by the FCC. (laughs) But I'm just saying, you know, and it gets to back talking about favor. I like to think, obviously, when you tune into my broadcast, you know I'm rooting for the Gators. Mm -hmm. And I've been criticized at times by being too exciting for the other team's scores. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? The other team has good plays and good coaches and scholarship players as well. I may be a little excited about it, but that don't mean I, I'm, I'm excited with favorably. It don't mean I like it. But you know, I'm not going to say, "Oh, there's a there's a pass." These are the 50, the 40, the 30, the 20. Right. Touchdown. You know, you're not going to call it like that. But sometimes, as offended, I oh, don't I'm so happy that they score. Well, I'm not happy about it. But you know, you you call it a certain way. You know, I mean, you just got to have that enthusiasm. I, I, I do things by enthusiasm. That's that's how I work, and I, I have a, I work my audience. It's a roller coaster ride. It's not just a monotonous steady stream. It's not like an oscilloscope that just kind of flat lines. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes up and it goes down. At the end of the game, I'm exhausted. I hope my audience is kind of exhausted too, because it's usually been an emotional roller coaster through the game. I think the, the saddest thing is when you get to the last couple of minutes of a game, you know you're not going to win. You know, you want to still keep your emotion, your enthusiasm, but there is a sense of sorrow. You know that hey, you know we're, we're down twenty-seven to ten with two minutes to go. This ain't happening because I I never want to give up. But there is a point where you realize dug on it, we're gonna lose. That that's probably the low point of a of broadcasting. But yeah, there have been some words that I probably said, and I am critical. But the thing about being critical is that it's it's always got to be professional, not personal. You can't say so and so. Sucks. I hate that word. I hate even saying that word. That should never be spoken by a broadcaster on radio. I mean, if you want to sit and talk like that in the 43rd row of the bleachers, go right ahead. But when you got a microphone on, you got to bring your, your grammar and your dictionary, your vocabulary to a different level. And so if I said that about a player, then that, that, that lessens my criticism. But if I say, you know, one for sixteen, and he struck out seven times in a row, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. I'm then I'm not saying he can't hit a lick. I'm not saying that. But if he's one for sixteen, you gotta realize, you, you as a listener, you're thinking, boy, I wish we had somebody else batting right now. <laughs> this guy's one for sixteen. You know, or, or you know, so and so is, you know, he, he's he's misfired on his last seven passes. He's now four for eighteen. You know, you got to realize that's not very good. I, I, I'm not going to say, boy, he's horrible today. Right. I might say. You know, he's missed his last seven throws. He's four for 18. And if we don't start completing more passes, we're going to be in trouble. That's a fair analysis. I don't say – if he, if he doesn't start getting his act right, then he needs to sit his butt on the bench. Can't talk like that. That's not my call. Right. You know? right. But probably if you miss too many throws, guess what? Next quarterback's probably going in. So, you know, I don't feel I have to be – the judge and the jury on that. I just call the play and I give. I let the facts amplify what's going on. That's why I love stats and. Uh, but I think there's a there's a right time and a right place to use stats. You know, and sometimes stats become just dribble. But if I, I never like to say, boy, he that guy's thrown for a bunch of yards. They thrown for a bunch of yards. That's good. If if you're talking on the phone to your uncle, how was the game? Oh, he was good. He he threw a he threw for a bunch of yards. I don't remember how many. I don't remember his score, but we beat him bad.
1: Right. Well, it's great to have a conversation with your uncle, but it's not great when you're a sportscaster. You right. need to have the numbers. You know that's your job. In terms of preparation, because I know that's a, that's a huge part of what you do, as you just talked about. What sports are the hardest to prepare for? Well, I, I've
0: done it so long that you know. Humbly speaking, none of them are hard to prepare for. They have different tasks. Now, football takes longer because there's more players. You know, mm-hmm. each team is going to have probably 75 guys that are going to be eligible to play in this game. So you got a three-deep depth chart, and you have an offensive chart, a defensive chart, a special teams chart, and then a couple of little minor charts I take and, and, uh, that I keep, and i got to watch tape. And I have a systematic approach for that. And what I do on Monday, I do every Monday. What I do on Tuesday, I do every Tuesday. My wife would would say to me like on a Tuesday, you know, years ago, she'd say, "What are you gonna do today?" I said, Yeah, no, I don't." Know, same thing. I said, I, "Typical Tuesday, typical <laughs> Tuesday," and it became known as a typical Tuesday. And on, on Wednesday, I I, I, sp- I focus a lot on special teams, you know, the kickers and punters, returns and all that, and so I named it Special Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I pretty much kind of had uh, stuff kind of wrapped up, and so Thursday became Thorough Thursday. You know, and so, you know, Monday, Monday and Tuesday are big prep days. And Monday was kind of a, uh, you know, manic Monday because, you know, you got to start fresh. You got to get going. And so I concentrate a lot on recapping the Gator stuff. And then Tuesday was the, uh, the opponent and getting them ready. And then Wednesday was special teams. Thursday was wrapping it up and Friday might be doing a free game interview or just kind of kicking back and it might be travel. So you might not have Friday afternoon free. So you didn't want to leave critical stuff for Friday afternoon because the time might not be yours to have. Mm-hmm. And so that on Saturday it was ready to go. And uh, you know, Sundays we we do the coaching show in the morning. Now we're doing them on Mondays. But for years, for about twenty five years, I get it on Sunday mornings. And that's why I, I wasn't a real big fan of Saturday night road games. Right. Get back at two a.m. or three a.m. and have to be over at the TV station at you know 7 o'clock in the morning and tape a TV show. And you know you've only had three or four hours of sleep. Now, having said that, it was a lot easier to do that when I was forty <laughs> than when I was sixty. You know, it, you know, it takes a little longer to recover from those 3 a.m. arrivals now than it did years ago. Sure. Uh, but but that's kind of the, the approach I've taken in basketball. You know, you're you're just preparing for 10 or 11 guys. And I, I designed all my own form sheets. Baseball, you got players, you know, particularly hitters. I do more chart work for the hitters than I do for the pitchers. Uh, and uh, I got to go through the same process with that. You don't you don't prepare quite as long in baseball because you might be doing four games in four days. Sure. so you, you don't have the luxury of spending a whole lot of time, but you, so you have to accelerate your preparation, but you still have it. you still do preparation. So that's what that's what's always made it fun of me when I, when I get to game day.
1: When you think about the games themselves, and I don't know if you think of it more in terms of moments, entire games or calls that, that you look upon fondly, over your 30 years at Florida, what stands out in terms of the the actual action that you've been a part of?
0: Yeah, the first the first thing was, was the Dorings got a touchdown. That was Florida and Kentucky in September of nineteen ninety three, and I, I, I always tell the story that you know in nineteen eighty nine people realized David Steele wasn't here anymore <laughs> after seven years, and in nineteen ninety yeah they got a new announcer in nineteen ninety one he's Mark Herbert, nineteen ninety two no it's it's Mike it's Mike Hubert. And then Doring has got a touchdown in the third game of 93, and all of a sudden, yeah, it's Mick Hubert. We, we love Mick Hubert. And Things didn't necessarily go viral back then because there was no internet, but the very next week we were on the uh, the game of the week, and Keith Jackson was calling the game, and so he used the audio and video clip of that. Jack Jackson, time okay, Doring wide right. Aubrey Hill, Harrison Houston go wide left. Third and 10, 28-yard line. Riffle dropping back to throw, pumps and fires the ball. over the middle. It's over, it's over. And so it, it went viral in the, in the sense of the word by 1993 standards. Mm-hmm. ESPN used it and Keith Jackson used it on ABC the next week. And so all of a sudden I was on the map in my fifth year as the Gators. And then in, you know, 94, Lon Kruger's here. We go to a Final Four in basketball. We're playing Duke in Charlotte in the Final Four in basketball. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I got here, we were seven, my first year in basketball, four years prior, we were seven and 21 with a 14 game of losing streak. Wow. So here we are in 94 in Charlotte. And in 95, we're continuing to win SEC football championships. And we find ourselves playing for the national championship in Phoenix against Nebraska, going in there undefeated, leading after the first quarter, only to get beat 62 to 24. And then the next year, go back and beat Florida State to win the national championship, Florida's first ever national championship. And, you know, it, it, it goes on and on and Omaha World Series in 91, again in 96, again in 98. One season just rolled off into the next. And I remember as we got to the millennial year 2000, I thought, you know what? These last 10 years have been the greatest 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. I'll never have another 10-year period like I've just went through it. How could you possibly have that? <laughs> Football winning in 91, 93, 94, 95, 96, National Championship 96, Final Four, you know, on and on. And all of a sudden, in March of 2000, Billy Donovan's playing for the National Championship against Michigan State in basketball in Indianapolis, you know. And then if we fast forward and here's we're playing baseball for the National Championship against Texas in 2000. 2005 of the College World Series, and then of course, as you know, that, that began that great uh, 24 or 30 month run we had where we went back to back in basketball in 06 and 07 with the, the group of 04s, and then of course, Urban Meyer winning 06 and uh, repeating in 08 the national championship. But you know, we get to 2010, I'm going, oh my god! I'd say I say in 19 in the 1990s we had a we had a player I thought I'd never see. I'd never see a player become greater than Danny Werfel. Mm -hmm. And then by the year 2000, we've had Tim Tebow. I'm going, my gosh, he surpassed Danny Werfel because it was a different world. There was now social media and there was uh, all this Internet stuff. And so Tim Tebow became larger than Danny Werfel. And I look back, I'm thinking, my gosh, these last 10 years, they were greater than the first 10 years. And I never thought they'd be greater than the first 10 years. Mm -hmm. So then we go into the, you know, the third decade and. You know, we go to a Final Four in 2014, and, you know, we we maybe didn't win as often, you know, in that manner, but it was just as riveting and just as exciting and just as fulfilling. And, and, and Kevin O'Sullivan's coming along, and we're going to Omaha seven times in nine years, and here I find myself in 2017. We're calling the national championship in, in baseball. Mm-hmm. So I've become the only announcer to get the call football, basketball, and baseball national championships for his school. And uh, you know I'm sobbing up there in the ninth inning of that game, knowing that we're we're just an hour or two away from winning. I can't hardly I can't hardly breathe, let alone talk. You know I I knew that was going to be my last radio baseball broadcast. So it turns out to win a national championship. So each decade that I've had has been probably more special than the first. And that year I think 2017, they they tell me I'm going to win the Florida Sportscaster of the Year award, and you know I thought well. Great. Thanks. I mean, that, I looked at it. What are they throwing me a bonus? <laughs> Nationalism, my lifetime achievement award, you know, I mean, a year ago in May, you know, I get a call from a, a guy who's running the, uh, the state of Florida sports hall of fame. And he says, are you sitting down? I said, no. He said, well, you better sit down. So I sit down and he said, we're going to put you into the Florida Sports Hall of Fame In the induction ceremony is coming up this coming November. I go, wow, I'm, I'm pinching myself. I'm saying, you know, Lord, I mean, this is unbelievable. You gave me the desires of my heart. From the time I was seven or eight years old, that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, I had a, I had a good job in Peoria doing the Braves, uh, Bradley Braves, I had a good job in Dayton for 10 years doing the Dayton Flyers. And all of a sudden I come to Florida and it's the only job I've been here 30 years. So in broadcasting, which is a very transient industry mm-hmm. people changing jobs like they change socks you know I've only had three jobs in 43 years of broadcasting so I've been extremely
1: blessed when you look back are there any games that you think about do you have a favorite game that you've called over the course of your time I remember you know one of, in the 91 season we you know we, we'd had the best record in the league in
0: 1990 couldn't claim the title you know but 1991 we're going to win it we're going to claim it and you know, we, we had a thunderous ovation in the Swamp the year we played Tennessee, and, and uh, you know, we had Larry Kennedy had a great interception run back. It was a lot of us that never heard the Swamp, you know, and then at the end of the year, we beat Florida State 14 to 9, and for many, many years, the joke went around, hey, do you know what time it is? No, what time is it? Well, it's 14 to 9. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, that played forever. And then, uh, you know, by, I guess, 1997, after we'd won the national championship, that was a tremendous thrill to beat Florida State in New Orleans. You know, and then in 1997, we're we're beating Florida State in the swamp. And that was the year that I coined the phrase, you know, that uh, this place is an insane asylum Mm -hmm. in the swamp. And, you know, and then uh, we go to Atlanta and and in the Georgia Dome. And, you know, I mentioned that we're blowing the roof off this place. And and, uh, we were scoring like crazy. Against Alabama to win the SEC title, and you know, and then being along with the, the basketball teams and being in, with Billy and the coaching staff there, that was a tremendous run. And uh, and and seeing a guy like Jokim Noah not even hardly get to play as a freshman because Billy didn't want to put him in some games They he didn't want to embarrass him, <laughs> and and then see what kind of makeup resolve and grit and determination that a guy like Noah had to become a tremendous player as a sophomore the very next year come along with Al Horford and Corey Brewer and you know and those guys and now Lee Humphrey who's joining me now uh, as a radio analyst on the network and uh, see what he did and you know, winning, winning those games, even, even though we lost to Michigan State back in 2000. I mean, we beat Duke and North Carolina along the way, you know, be playing big time college basketball, beating big time teams. And that's the thing that I remember. You know, when we won a football national championship, we just didn't beat, uh, a little upstart team or a team that we, you know, you know, we didn't beat a, say, like a Colorado or a BYU or something. Nothing wrong with those schools, but we beat Florida State to win the national title. And then we go and beat, you know, Oklahoma to win the national title. And then we go and beat Ohio State to win a national title. And then we come to basketball and we don't beat, you know, some Cinderella story team. We beat UCLA to win basketball. And then in baseball, you know, we don't beat, remember a few years ago, Coastal Carolina won the College World Series. Yep. It, was a, it was a Cinderella story. We don't beat Coastal Carolina to win the World Series. We beat LSU, mm-hmm. who had won half a dozen national championships, all of our national championships. Came against teams that, if you had to pick one, you'd say that's who I want to beat in football. Mm-hmm. That's who I'd like to beat in basketball, and that's who I'd like to beat in baseball. And we were able to do that. So sit there and, and be there, you know, and, and call those games like that. It's just, it's just been, uh, it's been, uh, it's been surreal.
1: You talked about the, the relationship with the fans and the connection of the fans having that thirty-year bond as the voice of the Gators of people who've been there every step of the way. I, I'm just curious if you've had. Any really meaningful or unique fan interactions over the year that, that stood out to you? I don't know if someone you know gave you a, a an odd item they wanted you to have. I don't know if there's you know women throwing clothing at you. I'm not sure, but I'm I was curious to see what, where that uh, where that story took you. No, I
0: can say I, I've had no women's items thrown at me, <laughs> and never,
1: nor have I had any oranges
0: thrown at me either. So I've been <laughs> the fact that nothing's been thrown at me is a I got a thumbs up. That's on good. It. That's, That's okay. good. That's okay. One interesting story. I, I'm not personally one that collects autographs because mm-hmm. what am I going to do with it? I mean, you right. know, it's a piece of paper that's going to be in a drawer and eventually it's going to get thrown out. And so I, I'm not anti autograph. I just don't collect them. But if someone comes up to me, I'm going to make sure I'm going to sign. I never turn someone down. If, if I've got time for this, I'll do, I'll make time for it as long as I possibly can make time for people. And for years and years and years, I, I would go to the uh, fan photo day football in August, a couple weeks before the first game. and I would a lot of times be the emcee, and it started out, I'd, I'd have to make announcements. But in between announcements, people would see me standing there, so they'd come over and they'd, they'd ask for my autograph or they'd ask for a photo. And then after a few years of that, they realized this is getting out of control, so then they gave me a table. So then I'd start sitting at a table and chair, and then all of a sudden they started getting lines. And I'm thinking, okay, fine. My my job is still to announce uh, 15 minutes left or five minutes left. We're all added, but I'm still signing all that. Well, I did that, and I, I would sign you know a few hundred of those on on a given Sunday for that, and I was great. People come up and say, hey, here's this picture. Remember you remember this picture you signed for me 10 years ago? And this that and the other. Here, can you sign it again? And I had the little children come up. One one boy set up set up on my knee, <laughs> and I took a picture of him. My knee. Well, it turned out about four years ago. This young man is hired by the UAA. Oh wow! His name is Sean Crawford, and Sean's <laughs> working in the video department. He's working at the UAA, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, you probably don't remember this, but in 1997 I met you." I said, "We did." Yeah, he said, "I sat on your knee at Fan Photo Day in 1997," and he had a picture of it. And now he said, "I'm looking at Sean now. He's six foot five, and he's working for the UAA." And so I thought, Wow, look at that. That's unbelievable. That that's really just really pretty special. But that's just an example of people who come up to me over the years and say, Yeah, I, I here's a picture we took fifteen years ago. I thought, mm-hmm. Wow, you still have it. That that's been something that's been a pleasure for me to do.
1: Among the many people that are at your your Hall of Fame induction were Nick Belmani, Mark Wise, and Lee McGriff, who, while you've worked with a lot of people over the years, those have been kind of your primary color commentators on your sports. I, I was just hoping you could talk about the relationships with those partners and what makes each of them unique. Yeah, there's no question I would not be in the Hall of Fame if I didn't have those guys with me. And that's why when they said
0: you you can bring someone, you know, and we got together, Scott Strickland was so gracious to, you know, we had a plane and we, my wife went over with me and then, uh, and Scott and then the the three guys that you mentioned there with, with us. And so I thought they just had to have those guys there because, you know, Nick Belmonte and I have done baseball on TV for 30 years. Mm. I've never done a Gator baseball game without Nick Belmonte. And he's a tremendous uh, baseball guy, I and mean, same age as me. So we we grew up watching the same TV programs, listening to the same music. I mean, he's growing up in Miami, I'm growing up in Chicago, but uh, we, we we're just the same in that regard. And so uh, he just he'd been a tremendous asset. And, and then and Lee McGriff was about in his third year. David Steele had started Lee for a couple of years when I came, and so. Uh, I inherited Lee, and, and Lee knew all about Florida football. He was like me when he was seven or eight years old. He was a Gators fan coming to the Florida via watching the games. And so he had that. I, I came to Florida, and I knew how to do football play-by-play, play, but I had to lean on Lee McGriff for all my football history of Florida. And he did that for five years until his boys got older, and then he left for 10 years and then returned, I think, in 2003, and has been back. So I've been with him for over 20 years, tremendous analyst, And in Mark Wise, we just wrapped up, I think, our 21st season. Mm. Uh, Mark's done less and less radio the last couple of years because he's done more and more with ESPN, which is really his heart, really his dream to be more involved as a TV analyst. And so I'm all for him doing that. And that's why Lee Humphrey is kind of transitioning in there to be the radio analyst now. But Mark is the best there is in terms of being a basketball analyst. He's a former coach, and he is so far ahead of the game and his vision of the game and seeing the games and analyzing stuff. And uh, really, not just about this game he's watching, but he's got a great handle on all of college basketball, grew up in Kentucky as a real basketball fan, and so I've been blessed to be with Nick belmonti who's a tremendous baseball guy, and Lee McGriff, who lives, eats, and football, and Mark Wise, who's a basketball guru. So I don't go into the Hall of Fame unless I have that continuity, working those three sports with those three guys like that.
1: Are, are there any behind the scenes stories that are, are particularly humorous? I would just think about, I know that I have them, but in terms of something where people would never know that a situation went really wrong and you had to throw it together or something that didn't quite go the way it was supposed to, they were still able to, to pull off in the end. Well, again, there, I, I don't know that I can
0: recite, you know, line and verse game by game. I just know this. I think it was a, a, a deodorant commercial or, that was on TV years and years ago, and the line was, never let them see you sweat. <laughs> and, and that's really the, the part of the essence of the broadcasting. Hey, when it's live, it's subject to go wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not recorded. It's not scripted. And so when things go wrong, that's when you got to rise to the top. That's when you can't let your emotions get the best of you because it's not going right. And I, I have to say that I haven't always been great at doing that. I get frustrated and and I get emotional, but you have to sometimes realize that, Hey, the guy at home doesn't see that, doesn't know what's going on. And you know what? He doesn't care because he's expecting you to give him the broadcast as if everything was perfect. So sometimes I get, I get, and I was really bad at this early in my career going on about officiating Mm -hmm. and I'm still, I still get on officials, but far less. I used to let that really bother me and I used to get hard on those guys I don't quite do that as much, but I think the big key is, is that when things aren't going right and you know, you gotta be good. And some Saturday mornings, say for football, I wake up and everything clicks. Mm-hmm. I got the words, I got the phrases. I I'm quick thinking I'm sharp. And there are some Saturdays you work, you get up there, you, you know what, everything is okay today, but it's a lot harder calling this game today than it was last Saturday. For whatever reason, you know, it's not terrible, but, it's work. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I've got to bear down. It's not coming easy today, and, and you know, and the next week it might come easy again. So you know, I mean, it's like it's like an athlete. You you can't be in football. You can't be ready to play the game on Thursday night if the game is scheduled for seven thirty Saturday night. Mm-hmm. You got to be ready to play at seven thirty. You can't get too ready too early. That's why you can't be in emotional fever on Friday night because the game's tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So and then you get to, you were ready to play Friday night. You get there Saturday. As a football player, you go, I just, I don't know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good. And I had a good week in practice. I can't explain it. Well, you just got to make sure you got to peak at the right time, and that's why it doesn't always have It's not automatic, and that's why they say you you take a look at a picture. He didn't have his best stuff today, but he battled, and he got through it, and he won without his best stuff. So sometimes you got to broadcast without your best stuff, and you got to bring it home and, and, and say, you know what, it was it was good today, but it wasn't great, and next week I hope it's great.
1: Final question for you, Mick. You, you've been doing this a long time. We've talked about the 30 years at Florida and a 40-year broadcasting career. And I know you get asked this quite frequently, but what is it that still keeps you going as you get further and further into this career? Well, I, I think I have an obligation to really carry out what I believe is really an anointing
0: for me. This was This was my calling. You know, there are not a lot of things I know how to do. I mean, I... <laughs> I can't, you know, I can't change a spark plug. I wouldn't know anything about being under the hood of a car. I, I wouldn't I'd electrocute myself trying to work with, the, you know, wiring. Uh, you know, there are a lot of things I can't do. Mm-hmm. This is one thing that I can do, and it comes easy to me. So I'm, that's a gifting. So I have obligation to the gifting, and I still have a desire to prepare. I think I'll know when I'm not want to do this anymore, when I don't want to prepare anymore, if I just want to, well, I, I kind of like showing up on Saturdays, but God, I hate Monday through Friday, then that's time to quit. And I, and I, like I said, I love, I love the grunt work. I love the going in there, the menial task of filling out my charts and doing all that kind of stuff, because I'm learning as I'm doing that. And so I still have that desire to do it. And it's only been the last couple of years that people have started to ask me, man, how long are you going to keep doing this? I'm mm-hmm. going, what did I go from age 40 to age 60 overnight, I feel, like, I feel like I'm like 45 years old. I don't feel like I'm, at, I'm coming to the end. I still have my vision. And that's one of the things, Adam, I, I pray before every game. I say, Lord, give me the words to say and the eyes to see. you got to have vision. So as long as I got my health, why would I not want to go to the game and get paid to call a game? I still have sure. a desire to do this. What am I going to retire to do? <laughs> I mean, I, I have an off season. I'm beginning to go into it now. And I'm, I love it. I, and the joke is this don't ask me what's my favorite sport because people are what's your favorite sport? You know, I said, don't ask me that. Ask me what my favorite season is. Mm-hmm. I said, well, what is your favorite season? I'll say, the off season <laughs> <laughs> because I love the football season, I love the basketball season, I love the baseball season. But then I like the off season because when August comes around, I can't wait to get back at it after slowing down in June and July. That's great. I love it, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to do that. 12 months a year. Mm-hmm. So I like the downtime where I can recharge and reboot. And uh, I, I marvel. I, when I was younger, I really wanted to be a major league baseball broadcast. I love baseball. I love broadcasting baseball. And that's what I wanted to do. But I know this. Had I got to that level, no matter what age, whether it was age 30 or age 40, I'd be divorced today. <laughs> I might be dead. Yeah. I mean, those guys are doing 200 games a year now, mm-hmm. 162 games, plus the all these spring training games are now either online or on radio. And playoff game, doing 200, you're working over 200 days a year plus travel. I mean, it's a tremendous grind. So I look at it and say, what a blessing it was. I did not become a major league baseball announcer. I used to have a thing that said that, you know what, if you don't become a major league baseball announcer, or if you don't get to do the Chicago Bears in the NFL, or if you don't be the voice of the Chicago Cubs or the voice of the Chicago Bulls, if you don't make the NBA, you're a failure. I used to have that in me. And then and it really hit me about 1998. Wait a minute. I'm living the dream. Mm -hmm. I don't I didn't need that anymore. It's 20 years ago. I didn't need that anymore. I'd reached the level that was where I'm supposed to be. And it's so much easier to live life knowing you are where you're supposed to be, because there's a lot of people chasing things. They're not where they're supposed to be because maybe they haven't been listening to the right voices you know, and so for me, uh, I'm going to keep doing this because this is what I'm supposed to be doing. My wife's a kindergarten teacher, been doing it in Gainesville here for 30 years. Wow. And I tell, I said that, that's, that's your class, that's your ministry. Your classroom is your ministry. You have a chance to make a difference in the lives of 20 or 25, five year old children. That's her anointing. That's her calling. I don't have a lot of patience. I'm kind of a type A personality and she has a patience of Job. One of my favorite movies of all time is the movie City Slickers. Jack Palance is the old Western rancher, and Billy Crystal is the young New Yorker, and his buddies go out to the dude ranch out in the West because they're burned out in Manhattan, and they're trying to get away. They're trying to discover life. What's it all about? And they're sitting out at that campfire, and they're totally afraid of Curly, the old Western guy. And they look at Curly, and they say, you know, what what is it about? And he he pointed that finger at Billy Crystal. He had that finger straight up. He goes, you know what the secret of life is? Billy, Billy Crystal, and only the way Billy Crystal will do it. He goes,
1: "No, what?" He
0: puts his finger, his index finger, in his face. Billy Crystal says, "Your finger?" He goes, "No, one, one thing." Billy goes, "Well, oh, what is it? What's the one thing?" And Jack Palance, as the character Curley, says, "That's what you got to figure out because we're all we all have a, a gifting for one thing, and if you fall in line with that, you basically never work another day in your life. But if you're doing something that you hate, man." It, it, nothing worse than that. And when I was in college, my dad was a factory worker, came out of World War II, worked in the factory, he got me a job in, in the summer, vacation relief, summertime between, between semesters. And I realized working in the factory ain't something I want to do for the next 40 years, mm-hmm. sitting there with an assembly line going by you. I'm thinking, oh, my God, it was it was awful. So these guys do this day in, day out. And that's one of the things my dad said, you don't want to do this. You need to get an education. And you want to be a sportscaster, then go do it and you can do it. And my dad moved to Florida and was here for five years before he passed away. So he saw me, his son, as the voice of the Gator for five years. So he was quite proud, obviously, that his son was doing what he wanted to do and uh, was doing it at the Florida Gators. So it it was a great thing.
1: Well, that is a really cool way to to wrap this conversation up. So, Mick, thank you so much for sharing these stories, these anecdotes. Congratulations on 30 years, and here's to to 30 more. I really appreciate your your interest today, and it's been a pleasure to be on with you. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. Before we shut it down for the summer on Gator Tales, we've got some special episodes for you to look forward to, including a roundtable with Chris Harry and Scott Carter breaking down the best moments, games, and more from this past season that you can look for in the coming weeks. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the pool.